it is with a great sense of privilege and also a great sense of delight that my family and I are with you today here at Montrose. It's truly a marvelous thing to which we've looked forward for quite some time. And to this congregation, we extend a hearty compliment to the work that you have done, the prayers that you have expended, and in fact, the great deal of preparation you've invested in this gospel lectureship. Indeed, I know that you enjoy this each and every fall and that over the course of many past falls, many tremendous lessons have been brought, much encouragement and much edification has been shared. And it's my hope and trust and that of my family that that will also be the case this week as well. I look forward to working with Brother Larry again. Certainly appreciate very much the work that he does here and the soundness that does characterize him. And indeed, as we give thought this week to some of the things related, in fact, to some troubling compromises of the church, I hope that you'll take note of some of those matters that we discuss, particularly from the point of view that we live in an age and a time in which the church is suffering some rather challenging issues. There are many decisions that are being made. There are many particular choices that in fact are moving the direction in some ways that are a bit problematic and troublesome. I hope this week as you and I open the Word of God that we will be reminded of some of the great truths and the marvelous teachings to be found therein, but also that we'll in fact be better able to address in our minds as well as to help others see what some of these compromises are and how God so powerfully and directly deals with them. You probably can tell on the slide this morning, and I will attempt to make use of PowerPoint presentations throughout the lectureship. So as was mentioned earlier, if you would like tapes of that or a particular record of it, I'm sure Brother Larry or others will make sure that, that you have that. And if, in fact, if you'd like to take notes during the course of the presentation, certainly I hope that you'll feel free to do that. By way of introduction, I might in fact focus our efforts for just a brief moment, not only on some of those problems and at least an overview of where we'll be going, but also more particularly some of the matters that we'll discuss interestingly this morning. I mentioned briefly that the church certainly is in a time in which, and I suspect it always has been, and in a particular position of facing some problems. In fact, if you'll notice on that particular second section, some of those problems over the course of the years have been relatively minor. And no lasting and great difficulties were brought to the church because of them. But aren't we all aware of the fact that some of those problems over the years have in fact been sufficiently great that they ultimately led to division, they led to strife among brethren, they led to factions and other difficulties, and as I mentioned, there are times congregations have split over them. Those kinds of problems in fact did great harm in fact to the church in many, many ways. As you and I give some thought this week to some of those issues, I would ask that you perhaps keep in mind with me the title I've given to the series, Troubling Compromises of the Church. I am not in any way by this series asserting that the Montrose congregation now is guilty of these things, but we do know of many places that are battling these issues. We know of congregations that are in fact afflicted with varying degrees of discussions concerning them. This is an informational series I hope that will assist each of us to think more carefully and more directly about these matters. I believe it would be well 
to define more carefully what we mean by relativism. If the title to this opening lesson is The Curse of Relativism, let's give just a passing thought to defining it rather carefully so that we will be very certain that of which we speak. As you can see, relativism is rather simply defined, but after the definition, I think some examples of it will drive the point home very easily and also very directly. It is nothing more than that philosophical position in which all points of view are declared to be equally valid, and furthermore, that all truth is relative to the individual. Now, there are two particular points of that, one of which, again, all points of view are equally valid, but then a corresponding or analogous truth that goes with it, if the first one is true, is this one, that all truth is relative to the individual. Consider just a few examples. Maybe you've encountered an individual who said, you proceed on your way to heaven and I'll proceed on mine, we'll both get there. Or perhaps with regard to a certain position, someone might say, that's the way you see it. I don't see it that way. Or perhaps with regard to another stance or another position, someone might say, you and I simply don't understand this alike, but we both are all right in God's sight. Do we gain a feeling for the basic matter beneath this? The person is in essence saying, you believe what you want to, I'll believe what I want to, God's happy with both of us. That's relativism. The understanding or appreciation that all points of view are equally valid, even when it comes to things concerning religion. Now, there are three particular avenues in which you can discuss this matter of relativism. One is in a cognitive way. One is in a moral way. And finally, one is in a situational way. Let me submit to you our interest, not only today, but throughout the rest of this lectureship, is to relate it to the Bible. Our interest is not so much in some of the others, only in the sense that they relate to what God says. But this morning, let's give some thought. What does God's book say about relativism? Does God's book uphold this thinking? If it does, in what way does it? But if it does not, let us be certain that we understand that fact and that we are better able with a cemented thought in our mind to oppose it with all the power that you and I have. Is relativism the truth? There at the bottom, I present one of the matters of thinking that should, I think, challenge each of us. Believe it or not, it is also the case that relativism slips its way into the church every now and then. Maybe you had discussions with individuals, and certainly the denominational world has accepted much of this. But there are those who, in regard even to baptism, they're at least willing to give in a little. Maybe it's not absolutely essential, they say, but maybe it's, it would be better if you did. Or with regard to another one, there are some who are not as strong on that, say, usage of mechanical instruments of music and worship, and they're willing to compromise and to say, God really doesn't care so much about whether you use an instrument or whether you don't. As you can see, you and I may know of congregations I know that my family and I know of some who, in fact, have begun to have discussions about these matters. It may seem startling to us, and it may, in fact, seem almost impossible, but friends, 
the church is facing some compromising times from the perspective of many. During the course of this week, we will look at a number of these supposed compromises, but this morning, let's lay the foundation with relativism. Having defined it, let's now begin to ask more carefully, what is it that the Bible says about it? First of all, let me be quick to say that the whole notion of relativism itself is logically inconsistent, and it's rather easy to refute it. Now, you and I will leave that approach to, in fact, perhaps those who would have a philosophy course in a college. But it's rather easy to show that the system is not a self-consistent one. I think there's a much stronger approach to take today, and that's what I would advise you and I to do. It's using this book. What does this book say about it? And might I advise, at least suggest, that we make the following approach. All of human history, all of it, can be divided into three rather nice regions or eras or epochs. One of them is that patriarchal age in time using the very diagram of the Bible. Another following that would be that mosaic age in which we understand the mosaic economy, the nature of the law of Moses and other things concerning it. And finally, there's that age of Christianity beginning in Acts, the second chapter, and of course continuing even until our day. Might I ask, for the next few moments, let's give consideration to all three of them, and let's ask, did God permit relativism in the patriarchal era? Was He supportive of it? What about the Mosaic era? Does the Bible teach that relativism was valid in that era? And then finally, what about the Christian era? I believe if we see a consistent viewpoint from God relative to the matter of relativism, we will even be better convinced and better able, in fact, to appreciate how God feels about it. It is with that thought in mind. Let's look first at that patriarchal era for a moment. And let me ask you to revisit in your mind two of the more well-known or well-familiar events of that era in history. In the opening three chapters of God's book, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, we well remember this amazing set of events. God in six days, of course, had fashioned and made this universe and all things in it. But we remember on that sixth day in particular, He fashioned man near the, near the closing of His acts that day. And as He did so, we quickly learn in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, that God expressed a particular order or commandment to the man. He said to him, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And with that, you and I appreciate that God thus placed a restriction and a rather sternly stated one, if I might add, relative to that tree in the midst of the garden. Adam and Eve could eat of every tree of the garden except that one. We, however, learn as the next chapter opens, in Genesis 3, beginning in verse number 1, the subtle serpent came before Eve, and as that opening verse of that chapter closes, the serpent said, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And a conversation ensued, in which over the next three verses, 
the serpent and Eve had a discussion. Eve even told the serpent, we may not eat of it, we may not touch it under penalty of death. However, in verse number 4, Satan took what God said and he added one word to it. Ye shall not surely die, the serpent said. And we remember the two verses later. Upon seeing how good the fruit of that tree looked to the eye, after listening to Satan in fact state how grandly it would in fact make her as a god, and listening also the appreciation of how good it looked for the nourishment of the body, Eve partook of it. She gave to Adam and he partook of it too. And now might we pause to ask, God had given a commandment. Eve had disobeyed and so had Adam. But now may we ask, that seems like such a minor thing, doesn't it? Eating of the fruit of one tree, I mean, it and fruit, fruit. Did it really make any difference? After all, could it be said that in the eyes of Eve, maybe she thought it was all right. Was she the one that determined whether or not it was right? Remember, relativism, we said, all points of view are valid. Every person decides for himself what is right and wrong under this relativistic scheme. Let's see what God had to say. A few verses later, after God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve had hidden themselves, trying to cover up their nakedness, we will remember that first of all, God addressed them. You might remember He addressed the serpent first, placing punishment upon him, and he would crawl on his belly all of existence. He also promised there's one going to come that will crush your head. We next notice He addressed Eve. She too was punished. We immediately learn that this matter of truth was not a relative thing. God said what He meant, and He meant what He said. It didn't matter what she thought about what Satan said. She had disobeyed and God was not accepting of it. And then God addressed Adam and he too was punished. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return into the dust of the ground from which you were made. We learn immediately a valiant lesson. There was no relativism in this situation. Not the slightest hint of it. Let's consider another. You may notice in Genesis 19, a little bit later in the Genesis record, we remember on this occasion that the interesting biblical character was a gentleman named Lot, the nephew of Abram, of Abraham if you please. This was a gentleman who had begun, if you remember, to pitch his tent towards Sodom. However, Sodom was known for its wickedness, particularly in a sexual character by way of homosexuality. And we find that deviancy expressed in such a graphic way as chapter 19 opens. But God had made decree that He was going to punish this place. And as He was going to do so, He informed Lot by sending two angelic visitors. As these individuals came, they indeed told Lot, who in fact he and his wife and their daughters, as well as the sons-in-law, if they had had a mind to do so, were advised to hastily leave that city because God was going to destroy it. May we pause to make this point. Their lifestyle, 
that is an encouragement to sexual deviancy in the form of homosexuality. That was their choice, wasn't it? Weren't they just pursuing an alternate lifestyle, as our nation has begun to call it? Weren't they simply doing what they felt would be better for their livelihood and what would make them happy? Well, that may have been what they thought they were doing, but God said, this is sin. And He said, this is an abomination, and this will not be tolerated. And in verses 24 to 26 of that chapter, He rained brimstone and fire upon it to the point of Lot for just a moment. They again had been advised to hastily leave this place. We well remember that the sons-in-law wouldn't even talk about it. They, in fact, mocked Lot when he advised them, encouraged them to leave. But then, as Lot, his wife, and the two daughters began to leave, we remember the messenger said, Do not look back. Hasten out of this place, for God is going to destroy it. His wife looked back. Verses 26 and 27 remind us that, in fact, when she did that, she became a pillar of salt. Later, may we never forget that Jesus the marvelous, the powerful, the omnipotent Son of God, referring to this event in Luke 17, 32, said three little words, remember Lot's wife. That still today rings so boldly in our ears. God meant what He said, and He said what He meant. There wasn't the slightest hint of relativism in this. Lot's wife couldn't determine what she felt was the better arrangement. The people of Sodom were not in the position to determine what they felt was better and expect God to like it. God respects His will and that alone. May we ask, inasmuch as we've looked at this patriarchal era, we have yet to find the slightest hint that relativism is valid, that God is accepting of it. Let's consider the Mosaic Age for just a moment. Now remember, we have advanced a few thousand years from that patriarchal era. But in this age as well, let's give some passing consideration to an event or two in these sets of books and ask again, were the individuals in a position to determine what they thought or felt was right and have God be mindful or respectful of it? Let us see. Let's begin with the Ten Commandments. The fourth of those Ten Commandments was this. I've written it there for you for your consideration. It's in Exodus 20 beginning in verse 8. One by one as God gave or declared those Ten Commandments, He did so with very great directness and He also did so with great plainness. The fourth commandment was this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And in the verses that followed, God proceeded to identify some of the ways in which they were to keep it holy. First, they were to do no work. Using that as our guide, might you and I now ask, what did God mean by that? So let's just suppose that an individual back in that day, long before there was electricity, that a person was hungry. Was he at liberty to go and gather some sticks, for instance, and build a fire? Would God be accepting of that? After all, I'm hungry. And don't we all like to eat? May we give some thought. There is an instance in which the book of Numbers addresses that. Might I ask you to consider Numbers 15, 
beginning in verse 23, or rather verse 32. It is on that occasion we learn that as the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, making their way toward the land of Canaan, that there was an occasion in which one of the individuals, one of the men, was found gathering sticks on the Sabbath. You and I might be in a position to say that man surely had a reasonable argument with God. Maybe he was cold and he wanted to start a fire to warm himself. Maybe his children were hungry. Any of us who are parents know that we desire to provide for our children. We want to take care of them. We, in fact, would never allow them to purposefully go cold when we can make sure that that's not true. We'd never purposefully allow them to go hungry when we can make sure that's not the case. Here was a man gathering sticks. Now, surely God would be willing to accept that. Surely God, in a relative way, would say, Okay, your argument is sufficient. In the verses that followed verse 32 of that chapter, we learn, first of all, that Moses and the children of Israel put this man up in the ward. That means they didn't really know what to do with him. They simply locked him up, if you please, or at least confined him until they knew what it was that God decreed relative to his disposition. God rather quickly gave the response. Put that man to death. Put that man to death. All the congregation will take him out of the camp and with stones they will stone him until he die. Is there any relativism in this? God said no work on the Sabbath day. Did He mean it? He certainly did. In fact, as one gives thought to this issue, this matter of supposed relativism, I have no doubt this man could have presented any number of arguments, but God wasn't of interest to hearing them. And today, those who would present arguments, does God really care if I play a banjo or a drum in a worship service? If God has said anything about the music, and if He has not authorized it, by all means He cares. And it will doom your soul if you do it. Notice what happened to this man again. Put that man to death and the congregation did it. Maybe another example. In Numbers, the fourth chapter, in fact, the first few chapters of Numbers, we learn something interesting too about the Ark of the Covenant. In the most holy place of the tabernacle, there was this very special piece of furniture. We remember that the mercy seat rested on top of it with the cherubim that faced each other, their outstretched wings, and that was the place, according to Exodus 25, verses 10 through 13, in which God met with the children of Israel. Now, with regard to that Ark of the Covenant, how was it to be moved or transported from one place to another? Was it to be dragged on the ground? Could it be borne on the back of a camel? Well, any number of things could be asked, but God specified it. It was to be borne on staves that were placed through its rings, and people were to carry it, but not just any people people from a certain family of the children of Israel. Might we take note that when God specified that, it eliminated every other means of transporting the Ark of the Covenant. It could not be borne on a camel with God's approval. 
It couldn't be carried on a cart with God's approval. It couldn't be dragged on the ground with God's approval. Nor could any other family carry it with God's approval. It is with that in mind we come to that rather interesting saga recorded for us in 1 Chronicles 13. This was in the days of King David. David had a strong desire to centralize the worship of Jehovah in the city of Jerusalem, in that location where he had made his capital. As he did that, or sought to do that, he sent and had the Ark of the Covenant brought from its previous location to the city of Jerusalem. Or at least that was his intent. We will remember that as the cart was being moved, they placed it on a or rather as the ark was being moved, they placed it on a cart. And Uzzah, one of the sons of Abinadab, was in fact assisting in its movement. The time came when the oxen stumbled and Uzzah put forth his hand to touch the ark. May we give pause for a moment to make this statement. Uzzah was not from that family that God permitted to carry and thus to touch the ark. He wasn't. However, wasn't what he did innocent? He was afraid perhaps that the ark would be damaged. What if the oxen stumbled and the ark tumbled off the cart? Does that even matter? Surely Uzzah would have had reason to state, well, God will accept this. God will think that this is acceptable because after all, I'm just trying to preserve this precious piece of furniture. What happened to Uzzah? Each of us know the answer to that. God struck him dead instantly. He did what he was not authorized to do. It didn't matter if he felt he was innocent or not. Was there any relativism in that? Was his point of view accepted by God as reasonable, in fact, as deserving of heaven? The answer is evident. Not only did that death of Uzzah bring a strong lesson to David, David felt guilty over this, for he should have known better. And two chapters later, he even admitted it. May we, in fact, in passing, thus make this conclusion. In the patriarchal era, in the Mosaic era, there is no relativism at all. It was not to be found. God didn't just accept points of view because humanity felt that it was the better. I'm sure we each, though, have been waiting to hear about the Christian era. Let's now turn in our Bible and listen to what God says about these matters in the Christian era. What about today? We started our lesson this morning by making those comments. That person says, you follow what you like and I'll follow what I like and God will accept both of us. Does the New Testament teach this? If it doesn't, let us put in mind some passages, some verses that you and I can ever utilize to remind ourselves that God is not a supporter of relativism. It is with that in mind that I would ask that you come with me to 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. We'll begin our study, at least for this last section of our lesson, with that fourth verse of 1 Timothy chapter 2. It's a passage that has been a great comfort, I'm sure, to many of us as we listen to what the will and desire of God is. Speaking of God, it says, Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth? 
I might ask you to notice the definitions from the Greek words that are in place in that passage. Again, it reads, The knowledge of the truth. That word the, that little article the, indicates this is a definitive kind of knowledge. And in fact, here's its definition. It identifies a correct and precise knowledge. The Greek word, in fact, is epinosis, a precise and correct knowledge. That clearly indicates that there's some knowledge that's not correct. There's some knowledge that is not directed as precise by the definition of God. Paul in writing says, God would have all men to come unto the epinosis, the knowledge. But what kind of knowledge? Of the truth. That word truth, as you might expect, even in Greek, means that which is true. And aren't we all aware that there are some things that are not true? Some things are human speculation. Some things are just plain falsehood. Some things are lies. Paul said God would have all men to come into the knowledge of the truth. That directly suggests, doesn't it, that there is a defined realm of knowledge that God wants all men to know. Thus, men can't just believe what they want. It's that knowledge that God has set forth. We noticed what happened to Uzzah and Lot's wife and Eve, and we noticed what happened to that gentleman that gathered sticks on the Sabbath. What they thought was unimportant because what God said was what's important. We live in an age in which that premise hasn't changed. What God says is what is important. So we notice that Paul directly said that there is the truth that men are such that God wishes them to know it. Let's look at, in fact, how Jesus amplifies that statement. In John 8, verse 32, in a discussion with some of the Jewish leaders and other Jewish individuals of that day, the time came in that discussion when Jesus said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now might we pause to say that of all individuals, Jesus as the Son of God would know whether or not there was the truth. And He said that such a thing exists. That verse alone brings us almost full circle. We started this entire lesson by defining relativism in which some say that all truth is relative. There are no absolutes. Jesus said, ye shall know the truth. In other words, there is a truth, the truth of God, and it can be known. May you and I never subscribe to this matter of relativism. The truth of God exists. And humanity is such that it can not only know it, but appreciate it and follow it. That answers another concern that some people perhaps are tempted to have. Some think that God is so great. Some think that His thoughts are so mighty that you and I cannot understand it. And thus they think it's a waste of time to try and understand this book. They are entirely wrong. Jesus said you can know this truth. You and I thus must give diligence to it. We must give earnest heed to that which this says. There is no relativism in this age. 
those individuals who think, you approach heaven your way and I'll go mine and we both will arrive there. There's only two possibilities to any kind of statement like that. Either neither of you will make it, or one will and one won't. Both cannot follow what are completely different things with regard to God's revelation and think that both are right. Truth does not contradict itself. For if it does, it can't be the truth. In light of all those things, look at just a few of these ways in which highlighted to you and to me are some of these aspects and features about truly the truth of God and how that there is no relativism. A passage that might begin for us is the 119th Psalm, verse 142. In that age of the long ago, even the psalmist declared, Thy law is the truth. God's law is the truth. What you or I think may be an alternate path is irrelevant and immaterial. But you'll notice beyond that in John 17, 17, Jesus on that night before His crucifixion said, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy word is truth. We're so blessed to have this book. Each of us have one. Maybe you have several of them. It is the greatest single blessed inanimate possession that you and I have. The Holy Word of God. It is the truth of God. And perhaps it leads us to this next passage. In 2 Timothy 4 verse 4, this was a warning given to Timothy, but it's true not only for every gospel preacher, it's true as principle for each of us. Preach the Word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Why, Paul? For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They will not endure sound doctrine. There is a truth, you see. The truth of God has been presented. There is no relativism in religion. Those who subscribe to that are fooling themselves. And perhaps one final thought, and our lesson will draw to its conclusion this morning. As we give some thought to what that other one might be, listen to how Jesus stated this. In the twelfth chapter of the Gospel according to John, Verse 48, Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. In other words, Jesus said, this is it. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. And so, as we then draw the conclusion to our lesson this morning, if this is the only way to be right with God, and if there's only one way to interpret it, the way that God has delivered it, that then suggests that you and I truly must appreciate there is a straight and a narrow way that leads to everlasting life. In summary today, these particular conclusion thoughts seem to be important. And I would encourage each of us to thoroughly implant them in our thinking so that we are not in a position to allow troubling compromises to work our way into this congregation or any other, if we can do anything about it. First of all, we highlighted this morning that the church is facing a lot of problems, and we will address a few of them throughout the course of this week. But we have begun by saying God has condemned relativism in this age and in all ages past. We must follow this book and it alone. Whenever issues arise, 
whenever discussions come about, the issue and the, our approach must not be what do the brethren think about it. Our first approach should be has God said anything about it? What does God say about it? What does the Bible teach concerning it? That will put to rest every problem the church should ever have to face. But then finally we've learned that the one and only standard, the way in which God respects His will, is of course in the Word of the Bible. The plan of salvation is one of the things that some have begun to call into question. Various aspects and parts of it, some hold to be less important. You and I simply desire to teach it as God has set it forth. A person who has reached that age of knowing wrong from right, and who knows the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, died for his or her sins at Calvary. That person needs to believe with all of his or her heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John 8, 24. That person must repent of his or her sins. That is not an option. We learn that in texts like Acts 2, 38. Furthermore, that person must make a verbal, audible confession of his or her faith that Jesus, in fact, is the only begotten Son of God. Following that text of Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And that person must be baptized for the remission of sins. We learn that in Acts 22, 16. We learn that in Mark 16, 16 as well. And so as I stand before you this morning, it may well be that there is one or more within the sound of my voice that has never named the sweet name of Jesus as your Savior. Brother Larry mentioned a moment ago about that wonderful announcement that two were baptized into Christ just three days ago. Their life has been changed tremendously. Their eternity has been changed. If today you're in a position of having never responded to the gospel initially, maybe you have begun to think relativism is okay. There are many people in the world who will tell you it is. Some will say, you just be earnest and sincere. You just be a good person. God will respect that. Friend, don't you believe it. You believe only what God says here that will save you. And as we just noted, He has given a plan of salvation. You must follow that. That's not me saying it. That's not Larry. That's what God has affirmed. And if today you realize that position in your life that you are lost, don't wait another minute. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. If we can be of assistance to you by taking your confession, by aiding you in your baptism, what a day it will be for you. The angels are ready to rejoice.